Well, good morning, everyone. Can't believe this is the last Sunday of 2006. What a momentous year it's been for all of us, seeking Christ, serving Him, and growing in fellowship with one another. I was talking to someone this week, and they're telling me how life is so very short. Life is indeed a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. So, uh, may this day be a reminder to, to all believers as we end 2006, the brevity of life, the urgency for us to uh, know Christ, see Christ while it is today, and to make Him known, to do whatever it takes to uphold the Word of God in our lives, that Christ might be known to people in, the, in all the world, and that He might receive all glory through His name. So let's... Be, let's um, Consider this day, holding on to the Lord, and spend it, spend it in deep meditation, deep consideration, not just of this year, but our lives as well, and the future that awaits us with Christ. Can't think of a more appropriate study to end our, end our year, and a more appropriate study to begin uh, 2007, than studying Titus chapter 2, studying about right life. Now, if you remember, we launched this study because after our study of the Gospel of John, we did a nine-part um, series on the fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith. And myself and Elder Bob and Pastor Jason and Marcus, we exhorted all of you with the Word of God in terms of the essential cardinal doctrines of the Christian faith. Before moving on to 1 Peter, we felt pressed to do a balanced study on right life that accompanies right doctrine. That the pursuit of the Christian faith is not just orthodoxy, but it's orthopraxy. Having our practice, having our obedience, be in harmony, be consistent with the truths that we profess. So we did a nine-part study on the fundamental doctrines. How many studies we'll do on right life is yet to be determined. Uh, we'll just kind of go and see how long it takes us to uh, go through Titus chapter 2. A brief review of the book of Titus, a brief background just to uh, uh, bring you up to, up, up to speed on our study. Titus was a co-worker of Paul. He was left on this island called Crete. And Paul left him behind because there were believers there and a church was established. And Paul writes to Titus to remind him why he was left behind. The purpose of his stay in this island and with the church um, churches there. Titus 1 verse 5, if you have your Bibles open, the Word of God says, This is why I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So Paul left Titus behind so that he might put the church in order and to appoint elders. The churches here had great significant needs, great need for spiritual leadership, and great need for spiritual maturity in the congregation. So Paul wrote this to encourage Titus and to instruct him to this end. Not intended just for Titus. It's not a private letter. It's to be, it was to be read publicly at the churches so that they might know what Titus is doing and why Titus is doing these things. Paul began the letter in chapter 1, focusing on the leaders of the church, particularly the qualifications for the elders. In Titus 1, you find the distinguishing marks for those who are to lead and shepherd and teach the church. Parallel in the list, we find in 1 Timothy 3. And then in chapter 2, Paul moves on from the leaders to the laity, from elders to everybody. He focuses on the church at large and he zeroes in on a specific aspect of ministry, teaching them 
what fits right doctrine. Chapter 2, verse 1. As for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Contrasting Titus with the false teachers previously mentioned in in chapter 1, verse 16. Paul tells him, you are to speak that which fits with sound doctrine. Teach them the things they need to live the life that is consistent with sound doctrine. It is a call for sound behavior, holy action, teaching character, habits, attributes that are consistent with the Word of God. And this is our theme for the coming year, 2007. James 1.22 To be doers of the Word of God. We have been studying the Word of God. We're growing in knowledge of God's Word. But that is not enough. We must, we must become. It's a matter of survival for our church. As Christians, to be practitioners of God's Word. To be blue-collar Christians. And that was Christ's intention from the beginning. Matthew 28, 19 and 20. The Great Commission is, teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. God's desire for us is not just for us to grow in head knowledge, but for us to obey the scriptures that have been taught to us. And it's incumbent, it is an essential ministry of the elders and shepherds and leaders of the church to exhort the body to this end. Not enough for us is to present the word. Transfer information. Give people understanding. We need to exhort, plead, beg, and shepherd and help believers to put these truths into practice in every area of their lives. So that is why we're studying Titus 2, ending this year with this study and beginning next year with this, with this study as well. Paul breaks down the church, the six categories of people, older men, older women, younger men, younger women, pastors or leaders of the church, and then slaves, for our intents and purposes, workers. And he gives them and he gives us specific instructions on characteristics that mark right life. So, past two weeks, We've been studying um, older men. Older men. In our context, everyone, every, all the guys that are over 29 years old. 29 and over. And uh, maybe 28 for some of you, but 29 and over. It's so common to go to churches and you find the older men marginalized. Right? Older men are the guys that are hands in their pockets. Sitting on the sidelines as spectators. It's the younger guys who are vigorous in their pursuit of Christ, intentional about their lives, passionate about the things of God. The older men, they're kind of the burnt out ones. Yeah, I used to believe. I used to be passionate. I used to have heart for God. But the older ones are the ones on the sidelines, marginalized, no work to do, ignored and often neglected by the church gotten to a point where you're disqualified by being an older man to serve in the church and lead in the church. That's the opposite of the biblical model of ministry. According to scripture, godly older men in the church are a treasure, a tremendous blessing that every church, they need to esteem men who are older and consider them as valued resources for the church. They bring spiritual experience, life experience, spiritual experience, spiritual strength, endurance, wisdom to everyone in the body. He is a man who has walked with Christ for a long time in the path of righteousness. For me, I get excited when I meet an older man who is walking with Christ. I mean, honestly, when I meet a younger guy and he's walking with Christ for, you know, two days, excites me, right? Wow, 48 hours, you're passionate about Christ. My heart is inspired a little bit. 
what I mean so more than walking with Christ 40 years and have experienced the heartaches of life, the disappointments of life, the frustrations of ministry, and they're still passionate for the things of Christ. They still love people. Right? It's hard loving people. Right? After a few, you know, a few years, a few months, a few years, I mean, you, the temptation to uh, lose heart, lose faith, to stop believing in people is so great. Many people uh, fall by the wayside. But to have an older man, through all the disappointments of life and people, to continue to serve Christ, pass in the church, and that inspires me and inspires you. And when the church has such men, a huge treasure. Huge treasure. A triumphant Christian who has fought battle after battle. He's got the spiritual bars to show how he's been in, engaged in spiritual warfare over the years. He, has not, he didn't win every battle. He's lost several. But he's still in the arena, going out it day in and day out. And one day, that's my vision for Cornerstone Bible Church. One day it'll happen. One day, you know, not too far in the future, we'll look across the church and we'll see a lot of gray hairs, Right? We'll see a lot of men who are follically challenged. <laughs> a lot of men who've grown not in height, but in width, right? A lot of men who are kind of slower, you know, they're walking more with a limp. Their voice is not as strong. They'll be scattered throughout Cornerstone. And we'll all be so encouraged. Because there are these godly older men who walk with Christ 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And they're still serving the Lord. They have suffered. They've been tested. They've experienced loss. Their, their faith has been refined. They've taken blows in life. And they're still standing. They're still standing. And such men will bring tremendous strength to our church when they will model to the church what true godliness is. Right? And when they speak, there will be a, such a sense of of gravity, such a sense of weight to uh, what they're saying because their life backs them up, backs them up. So, that is what Paul is talking about. Titus and the church, you have to begin with the older men. See, young men, they look to the older men and consciously and unconsciously they imitate and they follow older men. And if older men are ungodly, and the future for the younger men is set. They'll be ungodly too. If older men are unwise, they're foolish, then the younger men will follow in their path. But if the older men have right life, the younger men, they will toe the line. They will follow. They have an opportunity to grow in this way. So Paul begins rightly with the older men. And he gives... Uh, Six uh, characteristics of godly older men. Six traits. I, I, I love these marks because it's not about prayer. It's not about how well he knows the Bible. It's not about how many mission trips he's gone to. It's not what ministry is involved in. Paul is not concerned with these things. That, those are baseline qualities. Those are just Christian qualities. Praying is everyone. Reading the Bible is a Christian. Right? Going to Bible study, that's what Christians do. Paul is not impressed by someone who is praying. That's a given. But older men must go beyond just attending Bible study. Go beyond just prayer and ministry. He must be a man who is temperate, dignified, sound in judgment, sound in faith, love, and endurance. Two weeks ago, we looked at the first character trait of a godly older man. He used to excel in being temperate. In being temperate. Remember that? Not given to extremes. He must not be a man who is blown and tossed by the wind. Emotionally, relationally, monetarily, financially, in materials, in career pursuits. He must be a man who is 
free from excesses in life. He is moderate. He observes moderation. He is not excessive. He is calm, restrained. His life is marked by moderation. Nothing rules or controls his life to go to the extremes. He has a balanced attitude towards life. When things go well with him, there is joy in his life, but is tempered by his faith in God. When he suffers hardship and trials and incredible sorrows in his life, he's not depressed. He doesn't give in to despair. Yes, he grieves. Yeah, he even cries. But yet, it's tempered by his faith in God's sovereignty. So he's a temperate man. That's the first quality of a godly older man. Second was last week. Second trait is dignified. Semnos. A grave man, serious-minded man, a venerable, honorable, reputable man. He is worthy of respect. He garners respect from the church, from non-Christians. He, he garners respect from other men because of his life. Because his life is in such order, other men just have to give him respect. He commands respect by his family, by his friends, and by the world. Dignity as a man, as an older man. We talked about that last week. You know, men, we, we don't freely give respect to others. You know, because of our pride, competitive nature. You know, we're always sizing each other up. So we don't freely, freely give up respect. But, when we see a man worthy of it, we, we notice it right away. And so we give it in amounts. But when a man commands respect by his life, you hand it to him. You give, you give your heart. You know, we're at a staff retreat and we're talking about presidential candidates and uh, Marcus and Bob and I were talking about uh, John McCain. And we're saying, oh, did you guys know that he was a prisoner of war during the Vietnam War. And he was tortured. He was in solitary confinement for many years. And he did not compromise. He did not repudiate our country. He held, held on as a good patriot. Man, you hear a story like that, you got to give him respect. He commands respect for a man to go through that kind of trial in his life and hold on to his integrity, maintain his dignity, you hear that story, you know, he left his wife and children, commands respect. The idea of being dignified, that's what Paul is talking about here. Last week was a difficult study. It has been a difficult study the past two weeks. I know I stepped on many toes last week, stepped on my own toes last week. Got an email this week, Pastor James. Sunday's message was easily the most painful message I've ever had to sit through at Cornerstone. I felt about two inches tall afterwards. I was embarrassed, humiliated. It was difficult to look people in the eye yesterday. I suspect it will be difficult for a while. I understand, brother. You know, I felt the same way preaching the sermon last week. I wanted to go into a corner and hide. Last thing I wanted to do was stand again in the state of the church. Let's talk about a dignified man, worthy of respect. You know, I'm not the man to preach that sermon. I understand what you're going through. When I'm preaching about godly older men, men, I, I know well, well, well and clear that I'm not even close. I've got a long way to go. I am preaching to myself. It is a painful study, but pain, growth comes through pain. You can't bypass pain if you want to grow. Like lifting weights, right? You want to grow in mass, you have to have micro tears in your muscles. Right? You don't want partial tears. You don't want complete tears because you're injured, you can't work out. You want pain just enough where your muscle experiences micro tears, and as it heals, your muscle grows stronger and it grows larger. Likewise with faith. And the Word of God, by the Holy Spirit, when we study it and look at ourselves, the Holy Spirit is so gracious, so gentle, so kind, doesn't give us partial tears, doesn't give us major tears. It won't destroy us. It rebukes us, corrects us, 
humbles us just enough so that there's micro terrors in our, in our character, in our heart, just so that we will just grow stronger in faith in Christ. So I know we want to run away. We want to close our eyes and tune our ears out. This is too humbling. This is too difficult. We want to run, but come on, brothers, let's not run. Let's look at ourselves in the mirror of God's Word. Let's not blink and let's speak the truth to our own hearts in love. All the while asking God to give us grace to grow in these qualities. Let's stand up under it. Let's bear down and push through it. Let's grow on being temperate men, being, grow, grow on being dignified men. And today's study is grow on being, I'm going to use the Greek word here, not to show off my limited knowledge of Greek, but just to show what a broad term this is, sophron, being sophron men. Um, you'll find in your different translations that translators use different English words to translate this Greek word. In NIV, the word that the NIV translators use is self-controlled. The idea of discipline, mental discipline. New King James Version used the word sober-minded. Right? So you're not inebriated. You're not drunk. You're not... Right? Just irrational. You're sober in your mind. You have clear, clear mind. New American Standard Version uses the word prudent. Revised Standard Version uses the word sensible. Sensible. It is considered one of the cardinal virtues of the Christian faith. It refers to soundness in morals as well as soundness in judgment. I mean, all these words speak and explain and identify Sophron. Webster's defines it as sensible, good mental perception, exhibiting sound sense and judgment, being sensitive, being sensitive. That's a mental uh, ability, being sensitive to others, Senses the situation, being keen on the environment, having common sense, a man who thinks rightly, man who makes sound decisions. The first time the word sophron is found in the New Testament is in the book of Mark, chapter 5, verse 20. And this is the narrative that speaks of that kerosene demoniac. This madman who lived in the tombs. Um, he was so riddled with uh, demons that they chained him and yet he could not be restrained. He was often bound with shackles, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles with, in pieces and no one had the strength to subdue him. So night and day, this madman lived in the, among the tombs and on the mountains, and he was crying out and bruising himself with stones. This kind of madman lived in a region called Gerasene, and Christ comes. And when this man saw Christ, he ran and fell down before him, cried out with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. And the Lord said, to that man, come out of that man, you unclean spirit. Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many, many demons have possessed this man. He begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. There was a herd of pigs nearby. Send us the pigs, let us enter them. He gave them permission and the unclean spirits came out of this man into the pigs, numbering about 2,000. They rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. The herdsmen who were caring for the pigs ran, told the people what happened. They all came out. Mark chapter 5, they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the man who had the legion sitting there, the man who had been bound, the man who was roaming in the mountains, bruising himself with rocks. They saw this man clothed and in his 
Sophron mind. In his right mind. That's the first time this word is found. Paul speaks of this in 2 Corinthians 5.13. We are not crazy. We are not beside ourselves. We are in our right mind. We are in, we have the Sophron mind. 1 Peter 4.7 Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of prayer. End of all things is at hand. Think clearly. Think soberly. But without these things, it is difficult to pray. It is part of the spiritual antidote to timidity. Timidity, fear of man, irrational fears, irrational anxieties, worries. One of the antidotes is, remember, God has given us not a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of dunamis, agape, and sophron. God gave us a clear mind through the Word of God. And that helps us fight fear of man, fear of the world, irrational worries. So older men in the church are to be temperate, dignified, and they are to have, they are to be clear-minded, sensible. Sensible. Now, these are English words that I think rightly describe Sophron, but in our context, we don't use these words to describe men. Right? We don't say, well, that guy's a sensible guy. You know? He's a clear-thinking guy. I rarely use the word we use, I, I, I use is, he's a reasonable man. Or the opposite, that guy is unreasonable. You can't reason with him. Right? The last time I used this word was about two months ago at 24-hour fitness. Playing ball, full, full court, five on five. Well, a pickup game, just whatever, you pick me up, pick, you know, and just play. There was this guy, he was telling us in mid-40s. And the guy was talking the whole game. And like picking a fight with high school kids. Yelling and screaming. And like this was like the NBA finals or something. And he was getting all worked up, all serious. Like going this crazy, irrational. And like I thought a fight was going to break, break out. So I was telling the guys, high school kids, you can't reason with him. He's unreasonable. Let it go. Right? right? Just let it go. And it was... Embarrassing, a 45-year-old man, you couldn't reason with him. So filled with pride and anger, he would not submit to the rules of basketball, let alone reason. Right? So that's what I think Paul is talking about. Um, someone who is unreasonable, he's not sensible, he's not a clear thinker. They... Don't process information clearly. And so they might agree with A, B, C, D, but the conclusion is wrong. Right? Like they, you, you talk with them and they say, is this a right decision? No. Right? This is, this is not wise. This is not right. This is not wise. Right? Yes. Conclusion. But they're going to do it anyways. They agree with the process. But the conclusion, they have their own mind. They're stubborn. They will not be moved. They make decisions in life. And you go with them with sound reasoning and they will not be persuaded. They're inflexible. They are wise, so wise in their own eyes, they will not receive any counsel from anyone and they're set in their ways. And you ask them to justify their decision. Why did you make this decision? And they have no valid reasons. It's not justifiable. And yet they try to make it sound like it's reasonable. You know, I, I appreciate men if they say, I just want to sin. Oh, I can respect that. You know, man, like, I respect you more. If they say, you know, I just wanted to. I, I just want to, I want to, I don't know, experience this. I want to live in rebellion. I want to do what I want to do. I want to sin. Now, I appreciate that. That's like, you know, being a man, you know, just... That's good. But when someone tries to spit it and saying, yeah, I'm doing it for the Lord, I, 
I tried to bring an illustration. I couldn't ask my wife. She didn't have one either. The best one I can come with at this moment is, uh, I think Gina came up with this, a drug-dealing Christian, right? So the idea is someone deals drugs and say, hey, drug-dealing is wrong. Oh, no, I'm going to give this money to the church, right? So the prophets, I'm going to give 10%, and the church will use it for missions, so it's, it's justified. That's not reasonable. That makes no sense. But to that person, as a pragmatist, it makes sense, right? Just say you want to do drugs. Just say you want to make money doing, dealing drugs. Don't spin it and make it sound godly. That's so irrational. That's so unreasonable. Well, that's the idea here. And this is the most difficult trait to, uh, in a man, the shepherd. This is the most difficult. Um, you know, we, we go stronger with age. And so when a man becomes, at the point of no return, right? Where, where he crosses this line, it's the most difficult. Because if you're not a temperate man, we can shepherd you and help you to be temperate. If you're not a dignified man, if there's areas in your life, the way you dress, you know, the way you speak, the kind of just decisions you make, you're just not honorable, you're not venerable, we can talk to you, help you, and... You know, just shepherd you to become more dignified. But if you're unreasonable, if you're irrational, we've had our share of men like this. We we go to you, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and it's like we're talking to the wall. It's like there's no response. We're wasting. We're just talking to the air. We give them all these convincing arguments. I mean, reasonable. I mean, a five-year-old child understand it, and they're like unmoved, unswayed, cannot be persuaded. Why? Because they're unreasonable men. So they're stuck and they just grow and grow and grow and they may hurt people all around them. They hurt their families, their wives, their children, in-laws, their friends, complete strangers. All around them, and he blames everyone when all the while, the man at fault is the one that's stirring him at the mirror. Right. So, you know, all of us, hard to see this in our own lives. Um, so I go to the book of Proverbs. I want to ask Solomon, Solomon, um, you're a wise man. What are some symptoms of an irrational man? Symptoms of an unreasonable man? A man who has no sense? Who is not sensible? Who has no sense? So Solomon gives us... Uh, Five symptoms of being not sensible, of a man who is not sensible. Five symptoms. Someone who, number one, number one, someone who talks too much, who loves to talk, but doesn't listen. He, he loves what he thinks. He agrees with what he believes. He will not be open to others' opinions, others' counsel, other, others' advice. He is not open to correction. Therefore, he is unpersuadable. He won't submit to anyone outside of himself, even reason, even truth. Proverbs 10.8 The wise of heart will receive commandments. The wise will submit to God's word, but a babbling fool will come to ruin. Proverbs 12.15 The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. So the fool, he's so foolish, he's so proud, he's right in everything he does. He has nothing to apologize for. There's no sins to confess. Everything he does, everything he believes is completely true. He's wise in his own eyes. There's no doubt, no complete certainty. That's a fool, right? You know, I, I have certainty about the Word of God, about doctrine, but not about my life. Like decisions I make, I don't know if it's wise or not. I pray that they're wise. I pray that they're right. My opinions, my judgments, they're clouded by my flesh, my sinfulness, my bias, my selfishness, my pride. So I don't have, I, I must not have confidence or conviction in my opinions. They're just that. 
On the Word of God, absolute certainty. But in life, I'm open to correction. I want counsel. I need advice. I need people to see my blind spots, but not this man. I don't have any blind spots. He's wise in his own eyes. Proverbs 13.1 A wise son hears his father's instruction, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. Even when the rebuke comes from parents, older men, elders of the church, pastors, doesn't, they don't listen. We've had shepherds come and say, Pastor James, we come and talk to this guy because I'm not a pastor, so he's not listening to me. Oh, it's not you. He doesn't listen to me either. Right? I'm a pastor. I'm an elder. It doesn't listen to Bob. If you don't listen to Bob, that's it. Game over. Right? So it's not, it's not you, brother. And it's not us. It's him. Right? He's so just wise in his own eyes. He doesn't listen to anybody. He doesn't listen to his own dad. Right? Proverbs 26, 12 do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. Right? Someone who is just right in his own eyes, wise in his own eyes. That's the first mark of an unreasonable man, irrational man, a man who has no sense, a man who is not, has not sober judgment. Second is adultery, immorality. Proverbs 6.32 He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. Right? So you're married, you and your wife, you're one flesh. You commit adultery. You're destroying yourself. You're, you're irrational. You've lost your mind. Right? You're that demoniac. You're so filled with the demons of lust that you're bruising yourself, roaming around in the mountains craving for something that does not satisfy. Maybe not to that degree, but how about you go near the adulteress? You play with fire. You are female-centered. A man whose heart goes towards immodest women. His heart, his attention is inclined towards women who are flirtatious. If they're ungodly, if they're immodest, he gravitates, he's attracted to such women. Proverbs 6.25 Do not desire her beauty in your heart. Do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be burned? A reasonable man, a sensible man, a wise man, his heart, a single man, is attracted to godly women. His heart is open to those who are modest. And for a married man, only to his wife. Third, the third mark is given to anger. He is given to anger. Proverbs 19.11, good sense makes one slow to anger. And it is to his glory to overlook an offense. So the whole temper issue, the anger issue, if you're just easily angered, you're angry all the time, then... Speaks of your sensibility. Number four, laziness. Laziness. Proverbs twelve eleven. Whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits lacks sense. Proverbs twenty four thirty through thirty four. Repeat that because I think it's worth meditating on. Proverbs twenty four thirty through thirty four. Solomon said. I pass by the field of a sluggard, by the vineyard of a man lacking sense, common sense. And behold, it was all overgrown with thorns. The ground was covered with nettles. Its stone wall was broken down. Then I saw and considered it. I looked and received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. So laziness is the mark of a man without sense. The final one was an unexpected one. I don't know if I would have put this on there, but it's in the Bible, so I present it to you. 
The fifth mark of an unreasonable man is he co-signs for other people's loans. Right. So this guy, or this person, can qualify for a loan from a lending institution. Right? There are companies out there that their business is to lend money and they'll charge you eight, ungodly interest, like 18%. And even they won't lend this guy money and yet you will co-sign for this person and put your life, your family, and your future in the hands of someone who is deemed untrustworthy by non-believers. There is a man, Solomon says, who is unreasonable, irrational. He's not a clear thinker. Proverbs 17:18, One who lacks sense gives a pledge and puts up security for his neighbor. So, these are symptoms of an irrational man, unclear mind. Now, how does a man get this way? Some people are born with it. Some people achieve it. Thrust upon them for others. I would say there are three main um, hindrances to having a right mind for a Christian. Three main temptations. Three main pitfalls. Oh, a hinder someone from having just common sense. We're not talking about like rocket science. Just basic sensibilities here. First one is wrong interpretation of the Bible. It's a source for irrational thinking. Wrong doctrine, wrong theology. I've met people who've made life decisions, family decisions, horrendous decisions because of wrong doctrine. When I was in Ireland, I met a family. They were living in Texas. They owned a horse. They sold their house, sold all their belongings. With their two uh, you know, teenage children, moved to Ireland because they had a dream. And in the dream, God told them to move to Ireland. And they don't know why they're there. So you don't know why you're here? What are you going to do here? We don't know. Well, what happened to your horse? Oh, do you, want, Dad, do you want to buy a horse? Because it's still for sale. Right? So they made this family decision because of wrong doctrine. Our neighbor in our old condo complex moved to San Francisco because they heard God tell them to move to San Francisco. Our new neighbors in our new neighborhood moved to, everyone's moving away from us. They, they're moving to Idaho because God told them to move to Idaho. Right. I mean, people like God told me to start this business or, or you know, buy this make foolish decisions. And they all the while say they're being led by the Holy Spirit, but they're not being led by the Holy Spirit. Because if you're led by the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 5.18 and Colossians 4 tells us that you're walking according to the Word of God. Holy Spirit inspired God's Word. And if you're walking according to the Word of God and the wisdom of God, then you're being led by the Holy Spirit. If you're not being led by truth and sound theology and doctrine and the wisdom that comes from truth, comes from the Word of God, then you are not being led by the Holy Spirit. I've heard people say, after making foolish decisions, God is sovereign. No, no, brother. You know, God's sovereignty does not absolve you of your foolish decisions. That's your decisions. That's your foolishness. And you will bear up under it. You will receive the consequences of you. You can't say, oh, God's sovereign, that was God's perfect will. Yes, it was God's sovereign will, but that was not His decreed will. That's not His God's moral will. That wasn't God's desire for you. Yes, it happened. These bad things have happened. But for you to chalk it up to God's sovereignty... That's wrong theology. People say, oh, I have a clear conscience. You know, I have peace in my heart. Oh, what are you talking about? Like Pol Pot, after he killed a million of his own people, they found him in the wilderness, the jungles of Cambodia, and you know what he said? I have a clear conscience. Hitler's in the bunkers of, of Berlin, he had a clear conscience. Joseph Stalin, I mean, all the mass murderers, they have a clear conscience. What's, what is peace in your heart? That's not, that's not of God. That doesn't justify foolish or wrong or immoral decisions. Or, I'm trusting the Lord. 
You know, I know we've broke our budget this year. Um, our spending is out of control, but we're trusting the Lord. No, that's wrong. That's not biblical. Trusting the Lord means trusting, obeying the Word of God and the wisdom from the Word of God. It means that God has provided for you X amount of money. And your responsibility is to live below that X amount of money. To spend above what God has provided and say, I'm going to trust God for the gap and He will provide. That's not biblical. That's not sound theology. You're spinning. And so many are... Sound judgment is beyond them because of this wrong doctrine, wrong theology. Second obstacle, second source of just unreasonable thinking is uh, idolatry. Desire out of control. James 4, 1, 2, and 3. What causes quarrels and causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have. So you murder. You will even go to like, assassinate someone's character, slander and gossip to get your way. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You cause division just to get your way. You do not have because you do not ask. So idolatry is simply desire of anything that is out of control. It's okay for believers to desire things, right? But where that desire rules your heart, it's out of control. Instead of you controlling, a desire controls you, and it has superseded your loyalty to Christ. That is idolatry. And this is so powerful. It, it, it blinds. I've experienced it. Are you curious with the hardening of your heart? I could feel it. When I want something, I don't have it. And I start to covet and I'm envious and I desire it. I could almost physically feel my heart hardening. Right? It's like mud on a hot summer day. Just like hardening within myself towards God and towards God's Word. Your blind spots increase, grow in size, tunnel vision. My... My experience, I see three common idols, three objects of desire that often tempt people and gets out of control. These three things all start with M. The first is money. For a lot of men, First Timothy 6.10, love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So... Desire for money, material things, things that money can buy. Root of all kinds of evil. So much so it shipwrecks their faith. Causes men to take shortcuts. You know, get into these scams. You know, out of greed. Get into things for a quick, for quick cash. And it even results in some of them being led astray. The second M is ministry. Ministry. Some of a common idol for men. Because men want to lead. They don't want to serve. They don't want to follow. They want to be followed. They want to teach. We've had men come to our church and say, I'm a teacher. So when are you going to have me teach, Pastor James? But they're not teachable. They don't want to learn. They know everything. But they want to teach. They want to be in the spotlight. They want to be up front. And they want that, and it's, a, it's, a, it's rightfully so. Men should lead, but lead by serving. But they so want the limelight, the spotlight, to be in front, becomes an idol, and they, no, the sober judgment escapes them. They become self-appointed men. Uh, Diotrephes of Third John, verse 9, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. So Diotrephes is the man, he puts himself first. He's a self-appointed, self-ordained leader of the church, of ministry. 
He's not ordained, put forth by other godly men, not by the church. He's appointed himself. He's unreasonable because of his desire for ministry, leadership in ministry. Second, or third, actually, third M. Oh, I might be recognized as marriage. Marriage. So three things, right? Three idols in men's heart that cause them to become unreasonable is right, money, ministry, and marriage. If they're discontent, they're lonely. So they idolize marriage. Idolize maybe having, having a family, having children. And so this desire takes control and they're so locked in, they cannot be reasoned with. And the third and final obstacle to sober judgment, being sensible, is pride. Pride. You know, self-centeredness, self-focused, self-will, self-preservation. They're so focused on self, such a high esteem of themselves, high view of themselves, but they're unreasonable. They're, they're not, and cannot, and will not submit to, to Scripture. They cannot, and will not submit from reasoning from the Scriptures or the counsel of other men. Pride is devastating to clear thinking. Pride is devastating. Right. Well, let me shift gears for our... our the time that we have left, shift gears a little bit. Now, I often wear many hats in the pulpit. I come up and I'm an expositor often, or I go through verse by verse through the Bible. Sometimes I'm a preacher. I'm preaching the Word. I'm just calling people to obedience. Sometimes I wear the pastor hat, and where um, I'm here to shepherd people with the Word of God. Well, for our limited time we have left. Let me put on the elder hat. And an elder is, he proestimi, he stands before the people, and he uses his life, by God's grace, as an example to the church, and lead people towards Christ, and to grow in Christ's likeness. So, let me, use my life a little bit, to maybe perhaps help you to grow, in these three areas. Uh, three uh, obstacles to having a sound mind. All by God's grace. For those that that know me, I hope you will say I'm a sensible man. I hope you will say, oh, James is reasonable. I can talk to him. You know, he's a clear thinker. Um, I hope, you, you know, my wife will say that about me. And I hope that you will see my family and you will see, yeah, it makes sense. Like how James and Serena interact and how they raise their children and how the eldership team works and how they lead, how they inter- have relationships with the church and how I, how we relate to the women and men, older men, younger men, how we relate to children, how we handle our finances, the cars that, the car that I drive, the clothes that I wear, you know, the, whatever, my, whatever, everything. Well, it makes sense. I hope there's, so to that degree that it makes sense to you, to that degree, maybe I can be somewhat of a mirror and help you by just sharing how I overcame these obstacles in my own life. Um, the first one was huge. Right doctrine. Right theology. Before I knew the Word of God, I was a victim to my emotions. I was a slave to it. Whatever I felt, whatever I was... I, I was reacting to my emotions, reacting to my surroundings, and life just throws curveballs at us. And so every curveball, I was reacting to that, so my life was being blown and tossed by the wind. Irrational decision after irrational decision. Because I was not led by the Word of God, inspired by the Holy Spirit. I was led by my flesh. Came to a point, by God's grace, I said, the reality is not what I'm experiencing. The reality is not my emotions. The reality is God's Word. I'm going to trust God's Word. And I'm going to have a high view of God's Word and say, let God be true, every man a liar. 
And I devoted myself to studying God's Word and to seek the authorial meaning, the author's single intended meaning, and to discover that truth, and to principalize that truth, and to submit to these principles, to do my best to obey the Word of God. That gave me clarity, helped me to become a clearer and clearer, more sensible man. I, I, I believe that knowledge and obedience of the Word of God results in a right mind, results in having a reasonable mind. The Holy Spirit is reasonable. The Bible, when it talk, talks about right life, it, it, it's reasonable. I'm not making sense here. Um, theology is not reasonable. Doctrine is not reasonable. Right? Amen. You understand? Trinity is not reasonable. You try to explain Trinity to an unbeliever, it doesn't make sense. Sovereignty of God, unconditional election, inspiration of the Bible by the Holy Spirit through holy men, doesn't make sense. It's not reasonable. But holy life, righteous life is reasonable. Non-believers can see our lives and say, well, that's virtuous. Honesty is good. Diligence is good. Laziness is bad. By common grace, right life transcends Christianity. Right? That's why the, our apologetic, our evangelism is not through evidences. It's not through arguments. It's not through reason we evangelize the lost. For them, the gospel is foolishness. So for us to reason people, to make it sound as if the Christianity is a reasonable faith is, is unbiblical. But to present our lives and say, look at our lives. Examine our fruit. Come into our families. Look at my relationship with my wife. Look at our children. Look at my friendships. Look at my finances. Right? Look at our church. See our lives. See our good works. These are apologetics. These make sense to the world through common grace. And God uses that to convince non-believers. So the Holy Spirit, in terms of right life, makes sense. It's the Holy Spirit works in us through God's Word. That's why through God's Word grants us uh, right lives. James 3, 13-18. James says, Who is wise, understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. You say you're wise, let me see it. He talks about things that pass for wisdom but are not. If a man has bitter jealousy, selfish ambition, this is not from above. These are earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Verse 17, Wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason. Sophron again. Wisdom from above is, NAS, reasonable. King James Version, easy to be entreated, persuadable. RSV, open to reason. So, wise man, because he has wisdom from the scriptures, has understanding, has insight, has wisdom that results from the word of God. So, the way to grow and having a clear mind is study God's word. Principalize his truth. Don't take it out of context to fit what you want to do. Don't use the Bible for your own ends. Let the Bible be the Bible. Let God be God. Study his truths in his own context. Seek the author's intended meaning. Principalize that verse and submit to these principles. Then you'll grow in wisdom. Second is the area of desire. The area of desire. Um, by God's grace, granted me that heart years ago where I think God gives and God takes away. You know, when things are great, I will rejoice. When things are difficult, I will still rejoice. Reigning in my desire. Where my heart is, I don't want anything. All I want is Christ. 
It's not Christ and, you know, growing ministry. Christ and the good marriage. Christ and money. Christ and whatever. Right? Interest into this college or this job. All I want is Christ and Christ alone. Rain your desires back. And if God grants these desires, praise God. If God doesn't, praise God. Having that heart helped me to greatly grow in my mind. Grow and having a clear thinking, being sensible. And the final one of pride. Pride. Just walking with a limp. Understanding my own flesh. Looking at the mirror of God's word and seeing how sinful I am, how proud I am, how as sinners, as a sinner, I have pride in so many things. Uh, it's just too embarrassing to share with you. And if I was more of a humble man, I would share it, but I just can't because it just it would not be dignified. But it's it's crazy how man we have pride over the dumbest things, right? Dumbest things. Right. Um, I don't know. I can't share. <laughs> I just can't. But guys, you know what I'm talking about, right? Like, I have pride in, like, for example, pride in my height. I'm five foot eight. Not a big deal. I don't know. I, I didn't choose it. I didn't achieve it. I was born this way. But guys, we just have, you know, I could throw a ball and make it go through a round, you know, a hoop. I have pride over that. And I go home and I think about that shot. And I replay in my mind. I'm like Stuart Scott commentating, you know, to myself. And I replay it. I just, that's, right? Being humble. All of these things will hopefully grant us grace to grow in this area. Uh, just questions for self-evaluation. Four questions. Am I wise in my approach to life and its crisis? Looking at it from God's perspective. So I do, do I look at life and its issues from my man's perspective or God's perspective? When I encounter problems or when people encounter problems, it's my first question, what does the Bible say? Or is my question, what do I think? What, is, what, what do my friends say? What did that song say? Right. Well, what did that book that I read say? Is that your first question? Is the first question, wow, this problem that I'm facing, my friends are facing, what does the Bible say? Thirdly, do I often make decisions which I later regret? Right. My life just regret after regret. And with my wife, my close friends, would they say I'm a reasonable man? Right. Am I open to correction? Right. Do, I, do I change my mind when, when given a reasonable, a good reason to change my mind? Right. Have I said, have I admitted to wrongs? Have I admitted, am I, do I easily admit to mistakes? Or would my wife say, no, you're stubborn. You're not open to reason. Right? You're blind to your heart. Let's pray. Lord, we do, uh, We understand a little bit what David said when he said he was a brute beast before you. Though you had elevated him from a young man to be king of Israel, he was so puffed up in pride, regaling in his accomplishments as a king, that he was envious and lust and toyed with lust towards Bathsheba, committed adultery with her to. to cover up this lie, had her husband killed in battle and made it all look like um, it was just par for the course in battle to protect himself. 
And when he was confronted, when he will not be reasonable, he was confronted by the prophet Nathan and shown his sins before God. He said he was a brute beast before you. He was like an animal, unreasoning animal, having no sense. That's how he was before you, who knows all. How often we have been a brute beast in your sight because of our pride, because of our desires that are raised out of control. Lord, because of wrong view of the Word of God, because of our laziness in studying God's Word. Lord, we acknowledge that any bit of wisdom that we have, any understanding, any growth in this, in our, our minds is all ascribed to You and we give You the glory. But Lord, help us um, to tear us away from the foolishness of this world. And Lord, grant us um, growth, especially the older men of Cornerstone, to be um, men who have, who think clearly, think rightly, understand our priorities and our responsibilities and live accordingly before you and before others. Lord, we pray that you would grant this vision of godly older men um, being, having, having an abundance of godly older men in the future. May this vision be in all of us and may it inspire us, the older men, to grow, uh, grow in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray.